Welcome to episode number 17 of our podcast series, The Paper Trail from the Netherlands Journal of Geosciences. My name is Henk Kombrink, and in my position as the editor-in-chief, I'm asking authors of papers published in our journal about the highlights of their research, but also the driving forces behind performing the study. Just to make research papers more accessible and giving authors a platform to tell a bit more about what goes on behind the scenes of writing scientific papers. Today, I'm talking to Luz Buijer, uh, a geomechanics expert at TNO, the Geological Survey of the Netherlands. And this is actually the second time I talked to Luz, because she was also my guest in the very fir first podcast I recorded for this journal. So quite a special occasion. This time, Luz and her co-authors and colleagues, uh, Hans Feldkamp and Brecht Wassing, published a paper in our journal in which they compare geothermal and hydrocarbon reservoirs in the Netherlands from an induced seismicity perspective. The title of their paper is Comparison of Hydrocarbon and Geothermal Energy Production in the Netherlands, Reservoir Characteristics, Pressure and Temperature Changes, and Implications for Fault Reactivation. Welcome, Luz. Thank you, Henk. Thanks for welcoming me back to the, the podcast of AEG. <laughs> Thanks for uh, for uh, accepting a second invite, Luz. <laughs> That's very much appreciated. <laughs> and uh, last time I remember we uh, we had our conversation on Teams as well, but you were, I think, dialing in from Portugal at the time. Oh, that could very well be indeed. I escaped uh, the <laughs> Corona times in the Netherlands ah, in search yeah. of warmer climates in the south. Indeed. Are you are you uh, calling in from uh, the same place now or are you in a colder climate today? I am in a very cold climate today. So it's in the Netherlands, but um, yeah, it's freezing outside. But yeah. I must say, since uh, that time in Portugal, we do this regularly and uh, I can recommend it. It's good for focus time, um, a change of scenery around, around you and for writing articles like uh, this one. Oh really? So you wrote uh, a significant part of this in in uh, in Portugal? No, in uh, in Brittany. It was in France. Okay, still a nice location. Yeah. <laughs> but I I um I did that once actually. I I went for a, a week of writing in Portugal myself, which was quite nice and effective as well. I do remember the stories of your of my other colleagues here, John Fis and Jan too. There you go. <laughs> the small world, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, um, let's talk about your paper, Luz. Um, and let, let's let's first kind of set the scene a bit. So 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 you've studied with with um, your your colleagues, obviously, uh, lots of the the kind of reservoir characteristics of of all the the hydrocarbon reservoirs, mo mostly onshore the Netherlands and and the geothermal production uh, projects as well but what was the kind of the main driver be behind doing this well in the netherlands we are now in the midst of an, an energy transition so we're slowly moving from hydrocarbons to uh, more sustainable uh, sources of energy um, and the subsurface keeps playing an important role there so we have uh, not only geothermal energy but also energy storage ccs storage um, 
but in the past with the hydrocarbon production, we had a lot of uh, induced smithy, not in all fields, in, in some fields, the Groningen fields, notably. Um, and with these new energy technologies coming up, it's important to mitigate risks like this and to understand um, why did this happen in the hydrocarbon fields? Is it comparable to the new energy technologies? What can we learn from the hydrocarbon industry there? Um, to take with us in the in the energy transition and to make sure we have a safe and sustainable uh, use of the subsurface in the coming years. Indeed. Um, and, and before we kind of dive into the, the several aspects of, of, of what you describe in, in the paper, uh, I thought maybe let's just ask you uh, maybe a, a bit of a cheeky question, but uh, what what do you think was the most interesting outcome of 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 the study you described? Um, well, we sort of knew a bit in advance, but the the difference in in mechanisms is of course pronounced. Mm -hmm. So what happens in the subsurface when you either deplete a gas reservoir or you exploit it for geothermal energy um, production? But uh, for me, the geological aspects were a bit novel here. So, um, of course, you know, there's reservoirs and sensors, etc. But for me, it wasn't clear to what extent they overlap in terms of depth and porosity and permeability. And it was good to get that um, clear overview there. And it helps to, to frame right. the questions that we have um, with respect to this topic, but also other topics, uh, not only yeah. seismicity wise, but production optimization, etc. Indeed. Um, and, and and I think related to that, to the kind of geological aspect, um, one of the first things you describe in the paper is um, the kind of depth window within which hydrocarbon hydrocarbons have mainly been produced or are, well, are still being produced and, and, the, and the kind of depth window in which geothermal energy production takes place and there is a slight difference between the two can you kind of describe that a little bit um yeah that's related to the the requirements that you need for a viable uh, production so for hydrocarbons you have the source rock the reservoir rock and the cap rock sequence which you need and it needs to be um, um, high enough porosity or permeability to produce from but for geothermal um, the requirements are a bit different, so you don't need a cap rock and source rock sequence, but you need a reservoir that's thick and permeable enough, because the combination of the two is the transmissivity. Well, in the sense of reservoirs that we exploit for uh, geothermal energy production, frosties linked to permeability, so we end up with having a, a bit higher requirement for porosity to have a high enough transmissivity for geothermal energy production. And as you go deeper and deeper, porosity gets lower and lower. And um, you end up with a too low porosity to have a balanced circulation, because that's the technique that's used in the Netherlands for energy production. We have a balanced circulation of fluids through a reservoir. Usually the two wells are um, about one and a half, two kilometers apart. And with balanced circulation, but for that you need high enough transmissivity, so high enough thickness times permeability, which ends up um, have, having a porosity requirement of about 15%. Right. 
Right. Whereas for the hydrocarbon reservoirs, on the other hand, porosities can be a bit lower in permeabilities because the gas is more mobile in these low perma reservoirs. And then some road ligand reservoirs can still be quite porous to, to quite some depth. Yes. And 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 this is an aspect that uh, I I was also quite um, I thought was quite interesting the, the the very the fact that yeah you need preferably the 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 higher porosity end of the spectrum for the geothermal projects to be viable. Um, but at the same time, I also I I think it's quite um, or quite often or published or whatever said that diagenesis kind of stops in 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 as soon as hydrocarbons enter a reservoir whilst in 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 uh, geothermal reservoirs where, where there's a brine essentially there is more potential for diagenesis so um my question is have the, the geothermal projects in the Netherlands have, have they always been able to find those kind of the sweet spots where the where porosities are high enough to to kind of uh, to produce efficiently? Um, so sorry, could you repeat the question? Well, um, so porosity is 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 mm. quite is determined by ultimately by how much diagenesis is happening in in the subsurface and and because sometimes that clogs up yeah. um uh, the reservoir and um oil and gas reservoirs as soon as oil and gas moves into a reservoir diagenesis is mostly mm. kind of uh, stopped but whilst it continues more in, into water filled reservoirs so to me that 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 means that geothermal projects really need to find those sweet spots where yeah. where the where the porosity values are still high uh, and um so i guess the projects that are active in the, in the netherlands at the moment have they always been able to find those high porosities so far so far mostly yes i would say in the the west netherlands basin there's the mm. the delft sensor formation which is a really good reservoir it's pretty thick yeah. uh, in the it's a syntectonic uh, uh, setting so yeah. um, in the lows you have relatively thick thin sedimentary sequences of sandstone over 200 meters thick high yeah. net growth good porosity permeability yeah um, and also in the north in the road ligand but uh, the thoracic for example is is much more tricky because um, there's large spatial variability throughout, for example, the West Netherlands basin. So it really depends where in the basin you are, uh, what has been the history of the Triassic formation at that spot. Um, and they drilled an exploration well, for example, the Naaldweg well to the Triassic, quite deep. Mm -hmm. And there it was totally cemented. So instead of uh, producing from a Triassic, they produced from a shallower formation. It, it is interesting that you say that because I had a discussion with Hans, who, uh, who works a lot in, in ThermoGIS, our national mapping tool for geothermal, which is, is very useful. But a lot of the data that go in there are permeability measurements on plugs taken from the gas reservoirs. Uh, and there's a bit of a question if that's not overly optimistic because the gas filling stops this uh, diagenetic aspect. So I think as we move to different energy technologies, these are aspects that uh, are important to take into account. Yes. 
and uh, hence it is um i think the ebn exploration drilling uh campaign is, is probably quite helpful in that regard where they really target these uh, not so much the, the the hydrocarbons but the water filled reservoirs yeah Definitely. And then we we learned a lot from the existing geothermal projects, about 20 operational at the moment. Of course. Yeah. Um, so one of the kind of the key aspects to kind of the production from gas reservoirs, oil reservoirs, is, is, is a significant pressure change. By how much do pressures fall when you just produce in a conventional way? Yeah, that's really quite a lot. So the initial pressure depends, uh, first of all, on the depth, depending yeah. how deep your hydrocarbon reservoir is. Um, the initial pressure varies from uh, hundreds of bars, to, well, 100 of bar, 100 bar to over 300 bar. On top of that um, normal pressure gradient, uh, you can have significant overpressures. Because we have this thick um, Zechstein salt cap rock below the, of above the Rodeligand reservoirs, for example, this is able to withstand very high overpressures below. So as the gas charges, it cannot escape upwards. And the stress inside that Zechstein cap rock is very isotropic. So your horizontal stress is, is nearly the same as your vertical stress. So it can carry a very high overpressure below the salt before it uh, starts to fracture or migrate or whatever. So in some of the reservoirs, especially in the northern parts where we have this salt, but also in the lower Saxony basin in the, the east of the Netherlands, we have very high initial overpressures. Mm -hmm. um, and then you deplete the reservoir by about um, 80%, 90%. It varies a bit. So you end up with pressure drops of yeah, hundreds of bars in some cases. Yeah, no, I, I was, I, I'm not really a specialist in this in this field, and I was, yeah, surprised how much pressures actually drop in these reservoirs. And but yet it's, it seems like induced seismic events have not happened in in many of the, especially the small fields, haven't they? No, I think um, if we talk about felt induced seismicity, so in the Netherlands. At a depth of three kilometer, we can feel events from approximately 1.5 to 2 uh, magnitudes below that you wouldn't notice them. But there's about 20 fields, 22 fields, if I remember correctly, which have uh, which were linked to felt-induced seismic events. And yep. then the other um, hundreds of fields haven't. Yeah. Um, and 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 you also state in the discussion that that there seems to be still a, a fairly poor understanding as to why how to explain what why the majority of these fields haven't experienced any felt seismicity. Yeah, we do have some understanding of the mechanisms, but this spatial trend that we see throughout the Netherlands is not yet fully mm -hmm. proven or clear. So there, there can be a number of aspects there. Because um, we see this trend in in fields that are seismically active, so all of them are in the northern half of the country. So, um, whereas the fields in the west, southwest of Netherlands, uh, where there's no Zechstein salt, so it's a different yeah. play. It's Cretaceous rocks, Jurassic rocks. These have never shown any seismicity that we know of. So that's important to say yeah. because um, 
monitoring wasn't always as good as it is now. Um, whereas in the northern part, we have this road ligands play, the Triassic play. Um, and then some of these fields show felt seismic events. Um, yeah. So yeah, this spatial trend, it, it can have multiple reasons. So first yeah. of all, there's the salt present in the northern half of the Netherlands. This may change your initial stress. But it's also different depositional settings. So we have the very arid road ligand and, and Triassic place versus the more fluvial marine sandstones of the Cretaceous Jurassic place. So that can um, give some different mineralogy in the falls, for example. Right. And and isn't it also because yeah you described that felt seismic events in in hydrocarbon reservoirs are, are limited also to the the Permian and the Triassic and the carbon or maybe Carboniferous but the the the, yeah. the, the older uh, range of the spectrum isn't it and yeah. and not so much the, the 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 Jurassic and Cretaceous ones isn't it also yeah just the stiffness of the reservoir the older they get the more the stiffer and the hands more prone to yeah, that, that's also one of the possibilities. So there can be quite a, a number of factors there. They're generally a bit deeper, they're stiffer, yeah. they're older, a different mineralogy. You may have a precipitation of different cements from the, the, the evaporite sequences that overlie or underlie these rocks. Um, and then there's the tectonic history that these fields have um, undergone. So I think the older Road ligand fields, for example, they may, may have a lot more faults internally compared to some of the younger fields. But this is still something we are looking at at the moment in TNO. And uh, I also ha I, I actually happened to do a podcast with uh, Rick Venting uh, oh, yeah. the other day, just before Christmas, and uh, and 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 he did a, a nice performed a nice study with Malus Quartekas from EBN about especially about the Groningen field and, and, and how kind of fault irregularities may have influenced yeah. seismic events. And, and I guess that that also applies. Definitely, because um, I have looked into that as well. And, and what we see from geomechanical studies is that the offset of faults, but also the dip, these are two yeah. key geometrical aspects. And of course, this varies per fault. If you look at Groningen, you have a number of different fault sets. You have the northwest southeast yep. trending faults and an east-west set and another one. Um, and geomechanically speaking, you would expect these to respond a bit differently. I think they might also have a different average dip. So I looked into it a little bit with one of my colleagues, Stefan Peters, uh, and we looked at the average dip of these northwest southeast faults versus the average dip of, uh, of the east-west ones. It turns out the east-west ones are a bit steeper, and geomechanically speaking, that is um, a more stable situation. And then we have the offset on the fault, which also can promote a, a stress buildup. So yeah. I think these are still interesting aspects to link to where do we see the seismic events occurring. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, and then, well, let's have a look at that at, at geothermal reservoir. So because Pressure is not really a key issue so much in, in those settings, isn't it? No. So a, a bit of background on, on the Dutch play. So in, in the Netherlands, we, we only have this balanced circulation of, of yep. um, medium temperature geothermal. So we don't exploit fractured reservoirs at the moment. We, we don't have any stimulation of these fractures like you have in, for example, granitic 
basement enhanced geothermal systems. Um, but at the moment, operational projects are limited to porous sandstones with a balanced circulation. And the pressure increase that you need for this circulation is not that high, and it's actually limited also by the regulator. So you cannot exceed a certain value above your hydrostatic gradient. Yeah, and and that I I I yeah I knew about that, and and that was confirmed by the things I read in your paper, indeed. And but then yeah, looking at the the present changes you see in hydrocarbon reservoirs, it, it, I thought um, I thought it's isn't it. Is it not surprising that pressure is so much regulated for geothermal systems? You think, oh, may maybe pressure isn't too much of an issue, or, or should I not see it like that? Um, no, so first of all, the magnitude is smaller, but also the sign is different. So you have yeah. one injector where you have, um, now let's say at most, a few tens of bars increase in pressure. Yeah. And the producer, which usually has a drawdown pressure of 5 or 10 or 15 bar so yeah. compared to the the hundreds of bars uh, depletion in the reservoir is in the gas production reservoirs this is really low yeah um as injector you have a pressure increase so this we yeah, that's we, different isn't it yeah we don't uh, usually have in the hydrocarbon reservoirs unless uh, there's reinjection occurring yeah and that's uh, yeah it's not too large but in, in theory this can lead to destabilization of faults but yeah, the magnitude is, is yeah. limited and it decays really rapidly from the injector in these porous formations. And and I guess there is the risk of seal breach, isn't it? That that is considered a, a, a quite a risk in geothermal uh, systems. Yeah, that's also something the operators need to look at. So mm. recently, um, I think in October, the new seismic hazard and risk analysis protocol was published on NLOG. Analogy. But there's also um, a protocol for the fracturing of the cap rock, yeah. uh, which also needs to be considered. Um, and this is mainly related to the cooling because we have these initial reservoir temperatures, which at depths of uh, one and a half to three kilometers are somewhere between 50, 60, and uh, up to 100 degrees. And you cool that by tens of degrees. And this really causes your reservoir to contract strongly, but also your cap rock, which may lead to a thermal fracturing. Yes, and, and it's exactly that, that that cooling aspect seems to be more important in, in geothermal uh, project in the Netherlands, at least, than pressure changes. Or, yeah. or am I am I too? Uh... <laughs> no, under the under the current operational constraints, so we have this maximum pressure increase imposed by the regulator. We have yeah. these relatively porous rocks. We don't exploit the fractured reservoirs yet. In that case, we do expect the largest perturbation to come from the amount of cooling. So yeah. this may change if you start to explore lower porosity reservoirs under higher pressures, for example. Um, but for the current projects, we think the cooling is the the biggest driver for stress changes. And, and, and given th that situation, um, are you surprised that nothing has been has been monitored yet, or has happened yet in terms of induced seismic events, or is that according to what you would predict? For most of the projects, is I think still 
not so surprising because usually um, as a precaution measure, the wells are drilled quite far from known faults. So there's you see the bigger faults in the seismics and then typically your wells are placed parallel to those faults. So not across the fault, but parallel and then at quite some distance from these main faults. And the cooling propagates um, from your injection well over time. Um, but it's not that fast. So it takes several years or maybe even tens of years for the cooling front, as we call it, yeah. to reach a distance of several hundred meters. So this depends on the thickness of your reservoir. The thicker your reservoir, the slower um, the expansion of your, your cooled reservoir volume will go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you're quite far from the fold, it, it takes some time for yeah. this cooled reservoir volume to reach those folds and to start to stress them. But, but do you think, is, is there still a, a risk given, uh, we, we know that the injected temperatures, of course, which is also set to a, a minimum, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so given these kind of boundary conditions, it, would you say, is, is there still um, is there still a risk of, of uh, over, well, in, 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 in maybe even 10 or 20 years time, that, that one of these fault systems may actually be reactivated? Uh, that could be. So from, from mm. our geomechanical estimates, we do see this cooling leads to quite significant stress changes, and these stress okay. changes can cause a fault to slip. Yeah. But whether this fault slip is seismic or not, that depends right. on your fault mineralogy. And the type of stress change is a bit different compared to the hydrocarbon fields. So we go to okay. a less compressive stress state. So this this may be a more stable stress, uh, more stable fault slip mode. Yeah. To speak, but this is uh, yeah. I mean, we didn't see anything that's good because you might have missed always some faults nearby wells, etc. But so far, we didn't see anything in the projects. We don't yeah. see anything yet incomparable projects abroad yeah. um, but I do think it's important to keep monitoring these uh, these projects and learn what happens with the subsurface is the response of fault seismics or not what is the response of the subsurface what is the magnitude of the stress change related to the cooling because we have many models but we really need to validate these against field data to build yeah. some trust and to reduce the uncertainty band there but if I if I understand correctly, Luz, what you're saying is is also a cooling front may reach a fault. It it could even lead to a stabilization. It doesn't, or am I wrong in no, saying no, that? No, sorry. Yeah, I, I realized it was a bit confusing terminology. I think the the stress changes are destabilizing. So you, re right. you increase your shear stress on the fault. You reduce okay. the normal stress. Okay. Um, which can lead to a fault moving okay but the mode of fault slip so for an earthquake you need rapid slip on the fault so yeah. you would have um several tens of meters of the faults for example slipping in a very uh, short time so 0.2 yeah. three seconds at a very fast rate 0.1 to one meter per second and that will generate your seismic waves but if your fault just moves very slowly then you won't see any seismicity and this this will not be a a problem in that regard and this this depends on the fault mineralogy for example clays they tend to be more prone to this this slow slip 
where it is cemented, strong, brittle folds may be more prone to this fast slip. So we need to consider not only the stressing mechanism, but also these fold mineralogies. And I think that's one of the, the big questions. And then in general, well, yeah, so I think for cooling, the stress chains are a little bit different than for gas production. Both can be destabilizing, but in a slightly different manner. And this is something I think we need to find out by considering modeling, but also field observations. Just uh, out of curiosity, is that do you have any subsurface data from the Netherlands where actually a well drilled, maybe an old exploration well drilled through one of these major faults where, you, where you've got some, some data actually to look at, or is that uh, not the case? Well, for the mineralogy, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, we try to find uh, more and more faults. So, so many people are looking at that in DeepNL. There's a project at uh, UU where, where Job Arts tries to look at fold mineralogies. And, um, and I have an intern at the moment trying uh, looking at core photographs to see if we can uh, find faults in these cores. But yeah, as you know, wells are typically not drilled yeah. through faults, preferably. And if there's a fault, it's usually really... Um, um, eroded, so the part of the core may be missing. So that's not always straightforward. We can, of course, also go to uh, to field analogs, outcrops, etc. Um, so we do try to look at it. It's not always easy, but I think it is important to do that in combination with lab experiments, modeling, and actually listening to the microseismicity. Is there any microseismicity or yeah. not? Or yeah. So, so do do kind of the the the, the geothermal systems uh, currently operating in the Netherlands, are they always monitored for for micro seismicity, or or is that the selection of of projects? Um, it depends. With we have the KNMI network, it's a national network, um, which has re recently been densified in the the West Netherlands basin, so the geothermal area. I think this now can detect events down to magnitude one. Well, that's the magnitude of completeness. So above one, one and a half, you can detect all the events in that region. Of course, if an event happens uh, closer to a station, you can see a slightly smaller magnitude. Of course, the north is pretty, pretty well instrumented related to the gas production. And then there's several operators who have put their own local monitoring equipment. Right. And this is sometimes incorporated in the KNMI network as well, uh, but sometimes it's their own uh, monitoring system. I see. So um, if I kind of have to summarize the the conversation, Luz, and, and, and as such, <laughs> try to summarize your paper to a, to a, to a certain extent is, is that yeah, in most the geothermal systems in the Netherlands are well. Uh, uh, so far, looking at the, the the ones that are currently in operation, yeah, you haven't seen any fault reactivation to an extent that it it causes concern. And uh, and and but you also, yeah, described that uh, we discussed the sweet spots in terms of porosity, uh, permeability, etc., thickness. Um, do you then? Expect for the foreseeable future that yeah, geothermal projects can can just be continued 
uh, drilling, etc. And and but how how long does it take before we actually have yeah drilled the sweet spots and and have to move to places where maybe these uh, the porosities are maybe a bit lower? This I wouldn't know. I think no. This is really hard to say. Yeah. I think okay. there's still some place, but you 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 also need to consider demand, so the project can't yeah. be too far away from the exactly. demand. I do think yeah. there's going to be more and more projects developed closer to, for example, um, uh, built areas or um, yeah. other industries, because now it's mainly close to the greenhouse. Uh, yeah. Greenhouses. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know when. I think I think now. Some are really in the sweet spot, so I think we do uh, have to move to a bit lower porosities or to some reservoirs we don't know so well. Because now uh, we're also in the regions where you have hydrocarbon production in the past and you know a lot. Um, but that's good that we have, for example, the SCAM projects with targets, these white spots in between where we don't have as much uh, information, but we still may have good conditions. So, uh, yeah. So there's still... Uh... Even in the Netherlands, with so many wells drilled, there is still room for exploration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Luz, I think um, we, we've been talking for more than half an hour already. Okay. Uh, I feel like I've I've I've, um, I've learned quite a lot, and I think again. Talking to the authors of papers to me is is always refreshing uh, over and above reading a paper. <laughs> so thanks for your time. Thanks, and many of the questions that are still in this uh, unanswered in this paper we are working uh, hard on to answer. Yes, and that that maybe that is a good one to to kind of finish with. What what is the kind of line of research you you are currently uh, focusing on? Currently, it's a lot of focus on the, the model validation aspect with fuel data. So we have some very exciting initiatives. We had a TKI project granted at, uh, at Pineacker, a geothermal site, um, where there's an old well um, which had rusted and, and was taken out of production. Um, and two new geothermal wells were drilled. And we can use the old well for micro-seismic monitoring. Um, ah. And that's very useful because you're at a greater depth, so the surface uh, in the West Netherlands is very, very noisy. And there's 500 meters of North Sea group sediments, which are uh, highly attenuating. And that old well goes still deeper than uh, than that layers. So it's not down to the reservoir anymore, but we can still monitor two kilometer depth. So then we expect to pick up really small seismic events. And there's, of course, the DOP, uh, project, the Delft uh, geothermal project, which also has um, in-depth monitoring and a lot of research uh, on the cores, the logging, etc. So that's, uh, that's really recent. So I think a lot will come out of that. And then we have uh, some new DKI initiative to place more of these uh, micro-seismic uh, sensors, etc. at depth to really study what happens around this cooling front. Where is the cooling front? Uh, what does it do with the subsurface? What happens when it reaches fault? So, yeah, I think uh, a lot of exciting plans. Yes, it sounds like that. And yeah, maybe the kind of the, the Pine Acker project, because I, I didn't really know about that one yet, is 
so I, so do I kind of have to see it like the, the the wells have been plugged at the reservoir, but then you can still enter the well uh, above the plugs for for to 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 install your equipment. Yeah, and in this particular case, uh, the the casing had, had rusted at a kilometer depth. Right. And the bottom part of the well was completely um, inaccessible. So in that oh. case, we put the, the the cement plug was placed at uh, one kilometer depth, just above that. Uh, I see. Above the liner hanger, which is directly above that that rusted casing. So we yeah. we could use everything above. I think yeah. typically when you abandon the well, you have to make sure at least you plug to above the cap rock. But we try some of the new initiatives if, if we can have. Um, some deeper monitoring in some of these uh, old wells. Yes. So yeah. So in the in the Pinaka well, you, yeah, it wasn't even possible to go beyond that point where the casing was. No, and and it has to be abandoned. So it it needs to be yeah. safe. But uh, the top 900 meters are now accessible for us. I see. But uh, yeah, in the new initiative, this might be a uh, quite a bit deeper near some yeah. other uh, uh, projects. So that yeah. really gives us an opportunity to listen to the surface and compare this with our models yes reduce the uncertainties understand yep. what's going on sounds fascinating yeah there's uh, a lot of things happening around this uh, this topic so yes so uh maybe loose in uh in, in uh, a few years time we will record our third podcast who knows <laughs> if i'll move to portugal to write up uh, some things <laughs> With a few trips to Portugal included, of course, yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Luz, thanks a lot for your time today. Um, I have to scroll down a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, this was episode number 17 of our podcast series, The Paper Trail. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>